Well, we have come a long way in our sermon series on the book of Luke that we've entitled, This is the Way. And we find ourselves in the last few chapters of Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So after weeks of moving with Luke at breakneck speed, right, through the three and a half years of ministry, starting last week, he slows way down, he downshifts. And he spends the rest of his book talking about just one week of Jesus' life. It's something that we look back on now and we call Holy Week. And it's his last week of teaching and activity and demonstration of this kingdom that he's been preaching up to and including his ultimate move in bringing and demonstrating the kingdom. And that is his death and resurrection, which will happen at the end of this week. So last week in chapter 19, we covered what happened on Sunday. The triumphal entry. You remember he finally arrived. After 10 long chapters of road trip, he finally arrived in Jerusalem. And then we covered uh, what happens presumably on Monday. And that is the cleansing of the temple. Now Luke doesn't say that that happened on the next day. He doesn't say it happened on the same day. You have to go to the other gospels to get the clues and see that that likely happened on Monday. And so today we look at what happened on Tuesday in chapter 20. And Tuesday is sometimes called the day of questions because it was the day when the Jewish authorities in all their different sections, okay, they approach boldly Jesus on this Tuesday in the temple in order to confront him and in order to trap him. We've already seen the, we've gotten a look inside their heart and their motive. They want to kill him. They don't want to just stop him. They have murderous motives. They think that's the only way to stop him. Of course, the people are following him and he's got a crowd. And so at first, when we go through these different questions and then his answers, all of the different stories at first seem kind of disjointed and, and random. But as I've spent some time with them this week, they've kind of come together to me, for me. Luke has put them together in a way that I believe he crescendos. He's building up to a proclamation. It's not one that hasn't been made already in Luke. But here as we venture into Holy Week and we're about to go to the cross and we're about to go to the resurrection, it's like Luke wants his readers to hear it again. And so he combines these what seem to be maybe random stories, which each have their own little treasure and lesson from Jesus. But he, there's like a string linking them together and it builds up to this message and and I hope to be able to unpack that for you today so let's jump right in chapter 20 starting in verse 1 one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders come up to him tell us by what authority you're doing these things they said who gave you this authority He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, John the Baptist, was it from heaven? In other words, was it from God? Was it divinely sanctioned? Or was it from men? Was John just kind of acting on his own as a human being inappropriately? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people, they'll stone us. Because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered with the third option. We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. 
So there's something really powerful happening here. And also, I've come to see it is very sad. Something very sad happening here. So this group was um, the Sanhedrin. We haven't heard of them up to this point. But the Sanhedrin are this group of 70 chief priests and leaders and elders from influential families there in Jerusalem and, and theologians. There's Pharisees. There's another sect of people called Sadducees. We'll meet them here in a minute. But it's 70 people in position of authority over the Jewish religion. They're set up in Jerusalem and authority is one of their big deals. And not only do they answer questions and kind of run things for the Jewish religion uh, from this vantage point, but they are distinctly in charge of what goes on in the temple. So it makes perfect sense that these guys would ask, who gives you this authority? And besides, rabbis always speak of who their authority comes from. You follow me? Like when they're teaching or they're demonstrating something, they will literally say, by what authority they taught. Moses tells us such and such. The prophets of old show us this or that. In the law, it declares what I'm telling you or showing you now. Jesus never did that. He's not doing that. He's like walking around with his own authority. That's what it seems like. And so it makes perfect sense for these guys to ask, where do you get your authority? Who gave it to you? I mean, after what he's been doing and what he's doing now. So he walked into Jerusalem. He didn't walk into Jerusalem. When he arrived on the back of a donkey, he was reenacting how kings enter into cities. And so he comes into Jerusalem as if he's a king. And then he lets his followers sing his praises and speak of his great feats and miracles as if he's some sort of savior for them, some sort of Messiah, okay? And then, if that wasn't enough, Monday, then he comes straight to the temple, the temple of God. And he comes in and he disrupts everything that this group had set up going in there. They had the authority to do the money-changing thing, to sell the, the uh, sacrifices for Passover week. That's what they're doing. They have the authority to do that. He has come in. He has stopped that operation. And Luke doesn't give as much detail. Luke's intent of showing what he did this for, he stopped this operation, it says at the end of chapter 19, to teach, to take over the place every day. This is now his space. He has stopped what was going on there and he has claimed this space, listen to me, like he owns the place. So it makes perfect sense for them to come in and say, who gave you this authority? By what authority are you acting? But, but it was also a trap. It was a trap because they knew. They knew by what authority Jesus thinks he's operating. There are Pharisees on this Sanhedrin as well. And their little scouts, I guarantee you, have reported back to this ruling authority. They're the ones they're expecting to do something about this Jesus. Who's threatening how they operate, what they do. And that is exactly what he's doing. He's the Messiah, he thinks. 
He is the son of David, the long-awaited son of David that everyone in that room, including the Sanhedrin, is waiting for. He's the son of God, no less. He's the king of the Jews. So if they could just get him to say this, because they know that's what he thinks, if they can get him to say this in front of this crowd that really supports him and really loves John the Baptist, so much so if they challenge John the Baptist's authority as not being divine, they'd get stoned. That's how deep this level of commitment is. They need to disrupt the people's commitment to to him and they need to stop him so if they can get him to just say one of those things then they can declare blasphemy and they've got cover at arresting him and putting him to death and so while jesus was there like many times he says my time has not yet come yet right now his time has come it's holy week but it's not it's not friday it's tuesday he's still got a few more things to do in this divinely orchestrated plan so even though he's there to provoke his own crucifixion which will not take much in the collision of these kingdoms he responded by asking them a question that actually would answer theirs if they answered it truly right they said john tell me his baptism i was baptized with his baptism was john divinely sanctioned or was he also like you're declaring i am just operating under his own human authority and they If they said what the people thought, then they would have to say they agree with his authority because John believed in his authority. He declared he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah, the chosen one, the holy one of God. They didn't. So what Jesus does next, and this is the sad part, and I wouldn't have seen this if a commentator hadn't pointed this out. What he does next when he says he won't talk to them, he's not going to answer their question that he asked, He's he's done with them. It's the last week. He's done. He's about to die. He's done with them. Think back over Luke. He's gone to dinner with them when they've invited. He's engaged with them when they've asked questions, even when their motives were false. He's engaged with them. It's like Jesus wants his people to convert, to believe. He even wants them. He doesn't want to see them as enemies to what he's bringing. Even though they are, he keeps trying all through Luke. He's persevering. He keeps trying. He keeps engaging. And you could see this as one last chance. Him going, who do you say John's from? And they don't. And so I'm not answering you anymore. This is his last time. This is his last time to engage with that leadership in any kind of inviting way. He's done here. He's writing them off. And how do I know? Not just because of the commentators, not just because we said, because of what he does next. We move on. He tells a parable. He listens to them. He's like, I'm not talking to you anymore. And he talks to the willing. That's all he's got time for right now. He's got five more days of life and ministry. So he's talking to the willing and he tells them a parable and it's about them. You don't have to guess on that. Luke says it. Jesus says it. He says, he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the tenants beat and sent him away empty-handed he sent another servant but that one they also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed he sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out then the owner of the vineyard said what shall i do i'll send my son whom I love, perhaps, 
They will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then, he asked the crowd, Jesus, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written in the Old Testament? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He tells them what he means. He doesn't leave it to chance. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So this parable is setting up a story that everyone would have been familiar with. The idea of a, you know, an, an owner of some land giving his vineyard or farmland to a tenant, right? And then the tenant works it. They get to live there and work it. And they get their living, but they pay the owner. This still happens today. We still have tenant farmers today. That, I mean, this is a common thing, but it was very common then. And then for him to send a servant to get his take, his, his income, that would have been normal too. What was shocking, what never happened was what happened next. The tenants did the most self-defeating thing, so self-defeating that no tenant would do this. They wound the servant and send him back. That would never happen. That, that's ridiculous. And what would also never happen is the owner at this point wouldn't go, okay, I'll give him another chance. I'll send another servant. That would never happen either. The minute this law was broken, the authorities would come, they would kick him off the land and possibly kill him for what they did to the servant. But this owner three times sent servants, giving them chance after chance. That would have never happened either. The, the tenants wouldn't have done it in the first place. And I guarantee you what he would did next. The owner going, hmm, I'll send my son, whom I love, with a perhaps they will respect him. Would you risk your son, your daughter in that way? <laughs> no way. But this guy in this little parable did. And then they killed the son, thinking they'll get the inheritance, which is also ridiculous. No, they won't. Not in this whole relationship. They will, what will happen? They knew what would happen. This, could, this isn't like a mystery. What, this parable of all the parables, Jesus isn't messing around. Everyone knew exactly what it meant. The owner is God. The tenants are the Jewish leaders throughout history. This Sanhedrin being the most recent set of leaders. The servants are the prophets through the ages. God just trying over and over again to get the people to come back to him. And the son is Jesus. So not because he wanted to be, but because they left him no choice, he was done with them. But they were not done with him. They were not done with him, we're going to see, because if they didn't already have enough, he just declared in this parable, in Jewish code, in story form, the very thing they tried to get him to admit earlier. He's the son of God. Do you see it? He didn't do it overtly where they could say, he said he's the son of God, but everyone there knew. He was declaring he's the son of God. So, verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest because he's done with them, so they sent these covert agents in there. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor, so the spies questioned him. 
Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality. You're no respecter of people. You just teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription is on this currency. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So this might be of all the different traps they laid. This might be the best one in, in how I, the best one that they tried. Because this was a common question during that day. The Jews wondered as they're waiting for their Messiah to kick the Romans out, set up the kingdom. They're wondering, should we be paying taxes to the state? I mean, we belong to God and these pagan overlords are ruling over us. Should we be supporting that with taxes? And so this was a big debate among Jewish people. And there were all kinds of different opinions. It's nothing like today with taxes, right? So you can relate to what they're doing. So especially, so they were trapping him because they wanted him on the record. Because if, especially if there were Galileans there, Galileans, you know, Judea, Jerusalem's in Judea, and then Galilee's a little north. So they've got a little more space from the center of power in the region to be a little more zealous and revolutionary in their talk. So especially if there were Galileans there, there were, this was an interesting question. And if he answered, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, and then tried to go into ministry, they had him. They politicized Jesus with the Jewish crowd. They've divided the loyalty. They've said, this is the kind of Messiah you want? Is this the kind of king you want? The one that's still going to be like paying tribute to Rome? That's not what they were picturing, even though their picture was false. That would have that would have devastated the crown and given them room to arrest him, to stop him, to kill him. Even better, if he said no, if he sided with all those revolutionaries, no, don't, don't pay taxes. They're, that's right. You shouldn't be doing that. They're overlords. They're pagans. You don't support that. If he did that, then all they had to do was go tell Pilate. They just go tell him. He just, he's, he's, he's a revolutionary against the state. And Pilate would have taken it from there. And he would have been killed. So they got him. This is a great trap. Great trap. But Jesus successfully answers in a way that's unarguable. But also diffuses the danger that he was in. But then also puts the full weight of expectation for performance back on them. That's what he does here. See, his answer here is not like, a 50-50 answer. When we read it in black and white, it sounds like it. Like the state and God are equal authorities and they both deserve your equal loyalty. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying, look at, he goes, look. So a universal thing that I learned in my study this week was that if a, uh, in the Middle East, if a power has the power to print currency, then they have the right to tax. So that was something that I wouldn't have known just by reading scripture, right? But that was something that everyone agreed. If, so that's why I said, give me a coin, Pull, they pull it out of their pocket and give it to them. This Jew says, so you, a Jew, have this in there, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Okay? So he was just appealing to what everyone universally agreed worked. Now, N.T. Wright says he might have been doing more than that. He might have been already upping the intensity here when he said to them this, because the Sanhedrin is made up of, they wouldn't consider themselves this, but 
on there, not the Pharisees so much, but the Sadducees, a group called the Herodians, they have compromised with Rome to get this seat of power that they have. So he might be saying, you've gotten a lot more than your money from Caesar. You've gotten power, place, wealth, prestige. So when he said, give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? He might be telling, he might already be saying something revolutionary to them. But whether, whether it's the first or the second, it doesn't matter in terms of what, how he turned the heat back up on them in a massive way. The real juice in this scene is in that second command. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God what is God. And here you need to see him looking piercingly down into the souls of this Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. He, you need to be seeing him looking at the temple and all that's there, all the people, anyone, anyone who would claim any kind of solidarity with God Almighty, you need to be seeing him look down into their souls and reach down in there and pull out what they know they should do. Give to God what is God's. We as Christians, if we want to declare that we have any connection at all with Jesus, with God, therefore God, we need to hear it like that. That's what he was doing. If there was any, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. He was not saying they're equal. He's saying, we owe, what is God's? The Jews know. And we know too, for the most part. Everything. He really put the heat back on them. So, he goes, we go on here and we get to the next question and we meet this group, part of the Sanhedrin called the Sadducees. So, read with me. 27. Some of the Sadducees who say, this is important, who say there is no resurrection. That's their theology. They don't believe there's a resurrection from the dead. Pharisees did. They came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Weird law to us, for sure, but something that they understood. I think it was in Deuteronomy 20-something. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. I think those brothers' moms went, praise God. Goodness, (laughs) glad that woman died. A lot of my sons, all my sons are gone. So yeah, this is a made-up story by the Sadducees to make a point. Now then, here's the point. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they always fought on this point of doctrine. And you might be asking, how in the world can two very committed to the Bible groups of of, of Jews read the same Bible and yet come out of the Bible with such a dramatic difference in doctrine? Seriously? Really? You wonder how that can happen? We have that going on in here, let alone, let alone all the different churches in town, right? We, the reason we read the same scripture with the same devotion and zeal and come out with something different is because of how we read it. We read it differently. So they read it differently. The, and I'll tell you how. Sadducees, they believed only the first five books of the Old Testament were divinely inspired by God, the books of Moses. So they got all of their truth because they believed that all of the truth was contained there. 
And so that was their faith. So they read out of that. And there's nothing in the first five books that they could find about resurrection. So it's not existent. So as they read the rest of the Bible, the prophets and the wisdom literature, they think it has value. But anything that seems to suggest there's a resurrection, you have to read that through the lens of Moses and make it fit with the theology of Moses, of of the books of Moses. So you see that? That's it. The Pharisees, not so. They believe the Bible's a flat document. Every verse is created equal. So so they would fight. And the Sadducees kind of mocked the Pharisees for their belief. And they had all these clever little what-if stories that they came up with to make it impossible. Your belief is, is difficult. Make it make sense. We have this in the law, in the books of Moses, you know, it's in Deuteronomy, so we know we're supposed to marry the brotherhood kid. So let's just play that out in this made-up scenario. And it, it just stumped the Pharisees all the time. They hated this kind of thing because they, they couldn't have a good answer for that. And so, but they're glad because they have a common enemy right now. They want to stop Jesus. They are glad. It might have even been their idea. Hey, you guys go and try to, you know, how you stump us, go stump him theologically, and maybe we can discredit him with that. So that's what's going on here. So Jesus replied in this way. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. And in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. You know, when I read this, I mean, we can assume, can't we? Jesus is smart, right? I mean, God is smart, right? He's smart. And so Jesus is smart. So it shouldn't surprise us when, when he masterfully answers kind of these tongue-twisting puzzles in a way that protects his mission and gets him through Holy Week in the way he needs to get through it. It's no surprise that he answers them powerfully, right? And kind of shuts them down once again. The, the big takeaway for the Sadducees then, and I believe it's for us now, is that there is a resurrection, I think that's why Luke has this story here. He wants to remind us what's in the balance, that there is life after death. There is more than what you see here. And there's something called eternity where death doesn't exist anymore. So Jesus, who's smart, even locates proof of this that might not work for us, but it worked for them. Just got to trust it. He found it in the books of Moses. Something they've read over and over. In the burning bush, no less. He declares that, that in the burning bush account that he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and says he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. So he even beats them in their own interpretation game and shows your, your, book, your Bible does say this. And he just puts them down. And I think that's why, just for fun, I think that's why the teachers of the law, that's usually Pharisees, all of a sudden turn away. Well said, teacher. They've got their answer, right? They got, man, we should have asked Jesus that. They didn't like him any more than they did before, but they did like that answer, I bet. And so the big takeaway for you and me, I believe, is that there is life after death to consider. 
as we live this temporary life. And make no mistake, he says it, who it's for. I mean, you can't tiptoe around this. It is for those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age. They are God's children. So it's imperative for us to go, how do I... How do I be considered worthy? That's what Luke's trying to remind us of as we move into the the climax of the gospel message. And it's not plan A, don't sin. That's the only way you get in to the kingdom is don't sin. We know that's not it or no one's getting in. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So they, everyone, including us, we should be asking, I want to be God's child. What does that take? How do I be considered Worthy, which is the same thing as saying considered sinless, since I'm not. You know, right? So while each of these scenes throughout this chapter, again, have lessons to us from Jesus, I see that he, the message Luke is stringing together is building up to what's about to happen next. And so here's, here's kind of my summary of what I think Luke's trying to do. So the first story suggests that Jesus has authority, serious authority. We'll learn in the Great Commission, he has all of it. All of it's been given to him. So he has got authority. That's the first story. The second story has Jesus with that authority, completely dismissing and even condemning these misguided and unwilling religious leaders. They didn't think he did, but he had the right to do that. And the third story has Jesus declaring that God should be unequivocally the highest priority of your life. Nothing's more important. That's what he says there. And then he has this story saying, I'm telling you this strongly because eternity is in the balance. Yes, Pray that it be here on earth as it is in heaven. But one thing that is always going to be a part of here on earth that is not in heaven is death. It does not end there. That's what you live for now. That's the message here. And all of these are building up to this climax, this declaration that's not a new declaration of Jesus, but he's saying it loudly, he's saying it clearly. Luke's saying it in this chapter. He's saying it in this book. He wants to declare it before we get into the end of this week. And it comes through one more story. And all of these messages came through other people asking the questions, but this one is different because Jesus asks the question. little Jewish code here, but we're going to break it. Then Jesus said to them, How is it? He's going to have a little Bible study with them here. How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? This Messiah, this king that you're waiting for. They say he's the son of David. And yet David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What he's saying is, how can David, if he's a son of David, how can David then call him Lord, something greater than him? He's quoting this psalm and he's asking, you guys know David, King David. Your king, your image of what this next king is going to be like, you 
idolized this guy, David. And yet, in the Bible, in David's prayer book, he calls the son of David that you all say you're waiting for, the Christ, this Messiah, Messiah and Christ, that means the same thing. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. He calls him Lord. How can that be? He says, David called, right there at the end, he says, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? You get what he's asking, the position he's put him in? How, how can it be? Why in the world would David call his son, who everyone in that day and age universally agrees that sons are inferior to dads, let alone David's son, generations later? Why would he call his son Lord? Unless he is. I don't know if I'm capturing it for you, but they would have been spellbound. He is making a claim that is the most scandalous, the most capital punishment worthy claim, unless it's true. He is putting them in the corner of having to decide. He's not just a good teacher with good things to say that does some miracles. He is saying in no uncertain terms, when you and I are reading through the book of Luke, when you and I are reading the stories and the activities of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, when we're watching his work, we are listening to and learning from and watching the work of no less than God. It's the most difficult part of our faith to a watching world. But the Bible, Luke, Jesus, leaves no room for us. So our elders and ministers are going to move around the room, and I just want to ask you, are you listening for and to God? Are you doing that? Are you hearing from God? If you're being moved inwardly in any way by a spirit, or if you just need a shepherding touch from ambassadors of this God, of this Christ, then I want you to come. And I want an unusual thing today that I don't always call for. I want 100% response to today's message, to Jesus who is God, 100%. Either by you getting up and going when maybe you wouldn't normally or through this song where we sing to Jesus, where we sing to God and we invite him with all that we are for him to bring that kingdom, to establish his kingdom, not the one we wish we wanted, not the one we wish we had, but his kingdom, God's kingdom. Let's stand and let's respond to this message.